Well, if you have a copy of Scripture, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. We, as I've noted already, are moving out of Hebrews 11 into chapter 12. We have one more chapter after chapter 12, but don't get too excited. Lots of good stuff in chapter 12, lots of good stuff in chapter 13. It would help us if we just slowed down a little bit and know there's still a lot of good stuff left in this book. Um, And chapter 12 is really connected to chapter 11, so just know that. The beginning of chapter 12 really could have been fit into chapter 11. And we're looking this morning at Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, just two verses. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You'll know these verses well, I imagine. Um, And before we read them together, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking his blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you especially to bless the preaching of your word. You have promised that it is that by which your people are saved, that the preaching of Christ crucified is wisdom and power, and that in the the foolishness of the message preached, it has pleased you to save those who believe. And so, Father, grant us faith. May there be salvation. May there be sanctification. May there be joy. May there be Um, endurance and strengthening and conviction and comfort and prodding where all those things are needed. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would minister to us as prophet, priest, and king this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, I am almost positive that some of you were doing the exact same thing as I was doing on the evening of July 29th and the evening of August 1st, 1996. And before you think I have some kind of magic ball, crystal ball to know what you were doing, we were sitting, probably many of us were sitting, some of you weren't born yet, I know that, but many of us were sitting on our couches with our hands in a bag of potato chips watching Michael Johnson win two gold records and break world records in both the 200-meter and the 400-meter race in Atlanta, Georgia in the Summer Olympics. And as we stood there watching him and wondering what he would do and probably cheering him on, we, we were inundated in television with the greatness of the man who would later become known as the fastest man who has ever lived. At the time, when we were watching and waiting to see what would happen with Michael Johnson, uh, he was known actually as the man with the golden feet because he came out and everyone was fixated on the gold Nikes he was wearing and they were talking about how much they weighed and they were talking about all the preparations that he had made. If you're interested, they weighed three ounces. I think that's pretty light. Most tennis shoes weigh about 9 to 11, and so they were talking about what he had done to prepare for this race. They had talked about all of the years he had waited. You may not know this, that Michael Johnson was set to run in the 1998 Summer Olympics, but was hindered by a fractured fibula. He was set to run in the 1992 Summer Olympics and did, but having suffered food poisoning in Spain just before the race, ended up coming in sixth place. But in the 1996 Summer Olympics, Michael Johnson did everything 
that everyone had expected all the years of training, all the diligence, all of the beating his body into shape, all of the preparations, they all came to fulfillment and he did what everyone expected him to do. And he goes down in history as the fastest man who has ever lived. And I think that's helpful because everywhere in scripture, the the apostles are going to set out these examples of athletics and they love the example of the race. They love the Olympic games. They understand the Olympic games. It's kind of strange for us to even think about the apostles having watched sports and yet they would have known them. They knew them well. They knew the illustrations. They knew all about the preparation and the diligence. They knew about what was necessary to win the race, and they used those illustrations, though we maybe find them a bit cheapened because we've heard them so often, they actually are some of the most powerful illustrations to us as we are called to persevere in running the race of faith, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And it's interesting that the writer, having brought us out of Hebrews 11, is now anticipating a transition, but before even transitioning, It's as if he can't wait to get to Jesus Christ. Notice that he says there in chapter 12, after he tells us that there's a race we have to run, and he tells us that we've had those who have run the race before us and who are looking on as we run and are probably in some sense cheering us on, though there's some uncertainty about that. He tells us in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated down at the right hand of the throne of God. What, what the Hebrews lacked was the energy of faith. The Hebrews lacked the energy of faith. And it's interesting to me that what the writer of Hebrews doesn't do is he doesn't say, try harder, work harder, do more, stop doing this, don't eat this, don't touch this, don't do this. He says, run the race that you're already engaged in. You need the energy of faith, and that happens by looking unto Jesus. Um, One theologian who I love talks about the writer of Hebrews, and he says this, there's perhaps no other book in the New Testament in which the two elements of theological exposition... Remember, I said that at the outset. This book is one of the two most theological books in the New Testament. If people say theology doesn't matter, ah, that's just for you know, seminary professors, the writer of Hebrews would argue with you. And there's no book in the New Testament so clearly in which the two elements of theological exposition and practical application are so clearly distinguished, separated, And yet so organically united in this epistle, and listen to this just just briefly, the writer never makes exhortation a substitute for doctrine. The writer never makes exhortation a substitute for doctrine. What the writer of Hebrews is going to do, even as he exhorts us to run the race with diligence, to lay off every weight and the sin that so easily besets us, He doesn't take one step forward in exhortation without bringing you back to doctrine. And he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who himself ran the race and endured the cross and despised the shame for us and has won the race and has gone before his people as the forerunner. And so this morning we're going to see four things. First, we're going to consider what the writer has to say about the theology of the witnesses to the race of faith, and then we're going to look at the necessary preparations for the race of faith, the prospect, the forward prospect of the race of faith, 
and the author and finisher of the race of faith. We'll notice that the writer, having told us about all those Old Testament saints and how by faith they look forward to Christ, and we've looked at the details, we've looked at the examples, we've seen how he takes us deep into the details of the Old Testament, he takes us under the surface of Scripture, and he says, come here, let me show you what they were doing, what motivated them, what enabled them to endure difficulties and trials in one sense, The writer gave us an entire manual of trials and difficulties you might face in the Christian life. In one sense, Hebrews 11, he takes every possible example he can in the time he can so that you can never say, no one understands what I'm going through. No one has my marriage. No one has my job. No one has to deal with what I have to deal with in social circles. And no one has this person against me like I do. None of us get to do that. The writer of Hebrews says, If you want to know the trials and challenges and testings of life, I have given you every example of those who faced them and by faith in Christ walked through them and endured and won the race. And now he says, since we are surrounded by so so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. Well, notice first that the writer tells us that we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Now, If you take time to look at this and read different people on it, you'll find that some people speak of the cloud of witnesses just as as we are looking on them running the race. We've done that for months. We've stood, just like we watched Michael Johnson. We've stood and we've looked back at the, the the replay. We've looked back at Abraham being tested to offer up Isaac. We've looked back at the the replay of Noah building the ark over those 120 years. We've looked back at all those examples, and in that sense, they have witnessed to us. They have told us, this is how you do it. They have said, these are the kind of shoes you wear. They've said, this is, this is the proper preparation it takes. They've said, the object was Christ, that it's by faith. They've told us what it took to persevere and to run the race. And yet in another sense, and I actually am going to argue that I think it's in both senses, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that in a sense, we are being looked on, and that this cloud of witnesses who have gone before us are as if they are running on the same Olympic team with all believers through all ages, that they have won the race, they have finished it, and now they are standing, as it were, on the sidelines, and they are cheering on the people of God. They are, in a sense, saying, run, run, run. I don't know if you're like me, but we ought to find it actually pretty silly when we, we watch football and we're like, run, run, as if anybody can hear us. It's just you on the couch with the potato chips. Nobody can hear you. And yet there's a sense where there's an anticipation and a desire to see others excel and win. And that's the way it is with the church of God. The Old Testament saints, notice what the writer tells us. It's very interesting. Notice what he says in verse 39 and 40. They... The Old Testament saints, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, New Testament believers, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That last phrase, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. The Olympics are not over. The race is being run. And they are a a great numerous cloud of witnesses saying to us, run, run, run. I want to read to you something I thought was so helpful. Um, Gerhardus Voss 
reflecting on that, that idea of the cloud of witnesses looking on at you, and I do, I want to individualize it this morning, looking on at you. I want you to think about other Christians. Abraham looking on at you. And um, Voss says, sometimes we are altogether too much concerned with what the present world will say about us, whether it will regard us as progressive and enlightened and liberal. While we but too seldom consider what would be the historic judgment passed upon us by the church of the former ages if its great figures could gather around us and review the part we take in the making of the history of the present, whether they would be shamed or gladdened by our doings. And what Voss is saying is that we belong to something bigger than ourselves. We belong to an Old and New Testament church, a multitude too great to number. Later in chapter 12, he'll actually say, you've not come to Mount Sinai to worship, but you've come to the heavenly Zion and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn of God who are registered in heaven, that even now as we are worshiping, we are worshiping with the saints mentioned in the beginning and throughout Hebrews 11, what would they think if they saw our lives? Now, I know if we were honest, and I asked my wife this last night, I read that quote, and she said they would be ashamed of me. Well, I'm not so sure. They had weaknesses. We have weaknesses. If you're running by faith, they are saying, run, run. They are cheering you on, and they are bearing witness to how the race is to be won. I think it's an, actually a very, a very powerful image for us even if it's only illustrative, a powerful image, image for us to entertain as we run the race of faith. Well, notice that the writer goes on and moves from the cloud of witnesses, and now he says, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily clings to us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. The writer wants you to know that in order to finish the course, in order to persevere to the end, in order, we sang today, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand. And when we sing the line, I am bound for the promised land, that necessitates that we persevere into the promised land. I am bound for the promised land doesn't set aside the zeal and the perseverance necessary to endure into the promised land. Now, it's not our perseverance. It's not our striving after holiness that's the ground of our entering the promised land. You could very easily take these verses and you could easily become very legal with them. You could think that it's all up to you and your performance and you could turn your eyes inward on self. J.C. Ryle actually warns about this in his sermon on this. He says, notice that the writer says, looking unto Jesus, she could very easily say, let me lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets me, looking unto me to run with endurance. You're going to be called to look unto Jesus, but the writer's going to say two things. First, he's going to say that it takes an intentional setting aside of everything that hinders and all the sin that so easily weighs us down, and it takes perseverance in the Christian life. Now, notice that there when he says... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so easily. He's clearly picking up on the clothing metaphor. I, I actually stumbled across a very fascinating article about the Olympics and clothing in America. And I would encourage you to Google that. There's some interesting um, facts about it in uh, the first two centuries of um, the 20th century, first two decades of the 20th century. Women that played tennis in the Olympics actually wore dresses that make us who like modesty uncomfortable. They wore dresses down to their ankles, 
And they are jumping up. There's a picture of one of the Olympiads jumping up in the air, hitting a tent. And I'm like, what in the world? She's got to be sweating. (laughs) This is crazy. Um, The writer of Hebrews would say to us that in order to, to run the race, you would lay aside everything that would hinder. In his day, in the first century, um, they would lay aside any kind of belts, any kind of long clothing that would hinder them from running. While, while we love modesty, and I know some of us are shocked at the immodesty even of athletes today, there's a rightness. There's a rightness to them laying aside everything that hinders them from running with endurance the race set before them. That's the imagery he wants you to have. The writer of Hebrews wants you to think, what might be weighing me down? And then picking up that clothing imagery, he says, lay it aside, put it off. Um, Everywhere he uses that word in the New Testament, it's about putting off the old man. Now you have to listen very carefully. I told you at the outset, theology deeply matters to this man and to God. I don't think the writer's saying to you sitting there today and to me, you know that one sin that you acknowledge in your life that's just that, we'll call it a besetting sin or that pesky recurring sin. Um, I don't think he's saying to you, you just need to put off that one, that one sin that you just struggle with, your conscience feels guilty over because you keep falling into it, you keep doing it, no matter how much resolution you've had, you just can't seem to overcome it. I think the writer of Hebrews is looking at the totality of the old man, the old nature, the sin nature that is said in the Bible to have been crucified with Christ. And yet, nevertheless, we carry that around with us. And it's so ready to... Uh, pull us back into it. It's a very difficult concept. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, Gerhardus Voss, another great theologian, wrestling with how to explain this. I think the easiest way is to say believers have already died with Christ. The scriptures are clear. These are not unconverted people. He's writing to people who have professed faith in Christ, and those are the same people that the Apostle Paul says, you have crucified our old man in Christ. Your old man was crucified. When Jesus died, you died. The power of sin was broken. The guilt of sin was paid for. The shame of sin. Yes, the shame of sin. Look, in verse 2, it says that Jesus despised the shame. He took the shame on himself that the old man was crucified. And so in order for us to win the race, we are ever and always to press off the old man that has been crucified with Christ. And that means, if I can say this in the most careful way this morning, that means every and any intimation of sin in any aspect of our life. Now, I know you will say, you tell us every week, we are miserably, miserably far from perfect. We are miserably far from perfect. We will never be perfect in this life. You will, in, in the language of the Heidelberg Catechism, even the godliest saints do make but the smallest advances in obedience to God's law in this life. The smallest. God demands absolute perfection in the deepest and most penetrating way possible. And yet, the writer of Hebrews would say, even though we know that the obedience of the Christian life, the putting of sin to death, will be very imperfect in this life, we are to have a mindset that I am not to entertain anything sinful in my life because whatever I entertain sinful in my life will ultimately weigh me down and keep me from running the race. Now let me say this. That 
I think very easily can manifest itself in things that are in and of themselves not sinful. I have known many people who have loved sports. Sports are not in and of themselves sinful. They have made that the totality of their lives. In that sense, that becomes an idol that weighs them down from running the race. Um, I want to say this carefully. Your family, Jesus says this. Jesus says, whoever loves wife, father, mother, son, daughter, more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus Christ says your family can become an idol and can weigh you down. Something good in itself can become a hindrance to running the race. It can be sin that you know is sin. It can be things that you know are weighing you down. And here's what I think. I I can't tell you what what those manifestations are in our lives. I know them in my life in, in small part. We are to take seriously this morning that you have been placed by Jesus Christ in a race of faith. He has redeemed you. He has called you. Your old man, your old woman has been crucified with him. He has set you on the track. Others have gone before you. And now he says, for you to win this race, you must endure by laying aside every weight and every sin. Yes, I know, it it easily besets you. It comes on easily. We are to be vigilant in fighting against sin. The scariest place any of us could ever be is in having sin in our lives that we're not dealing with. Now, I want to be as careful and pastoral as I can to you this morning. I know we all have sin in our lives. I know that. The scariest place you could be is to know that you have sin in your life and not be taking it to Jesus Christ and not repenting of it. The way that you lay that sin aside is you go to him, you confess it, you plead with him for holiness, you pray that he makes you like his son, Jesus Christ. You pray that the Father conformed you to the image of the Son. Thirdly, notice that the writer says, run with endurance the race that's set before us. The race is always forward-looking. It's always forward-looking. We saw that in Hebrews 11, that what motivated the Old Testament saints, though they didn't, see the, they didn't see the finish line. They knew there was a finish line. They knew, that they knew there was consummation glory. They knew that there was a Lord Jesus. They knew there was a Redeemer that they were running towards. They knew that there was a heavenly city. God had promised them that one day they would be with him in glory for all eternity. They knew that was the goal in their running. And the race, and this is so important, the race is always forward and perspective. Always, always forward-looking. Um, I love this quote by Thomas Manton. Manton says that um, in the race of faith, we are not to inquire how much of the way is past, but to strain ourselves to overcome what is yet behind. So we're running. We're in this race We're walking by faith. We're running by faith. We have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. There's already a a number of hurdles that we have passed in this race, challenges we have passed. We don't stop to measure how far we've come. We press on and we go forward. And Manton says, we strain ourselves to overcome what is yet behind. We strain ourselves to overcome what is already behind. It is always forward moving and forward going. You know, our, our lives are so short. This, this passage hit me like a ton of bricks. 
meditating on it. My, I, I run in this race once. You only run once. If you get disqualified, that's it. Your life is a vapor, David said. It's a vapor. 70 years, maybe 70 years, maybe. Um, you run in this race once. And there has to be an intentionality in the Christian life. You know, I, I shudder to think about all the churches that are playing with people. They're just playing with them. Tickling their ears, entertaining their minds, playing with them. You are running in this race once. Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. You are to run with a forward-looking, eager anticipation and hope of entering glory. And that means we don't play around in life. And if I could, if I could impress on you the seriousness this morning of how I feel when I think about this. The writer, the old hymn writer, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. All the laughs, all the enjoyments, all the times that you've spent time with people, all the experiences, all the joys, all the sorrows, all the hardships, difficulties in marriage, joys of marriage, difficulties with children, joys of children, how your house looks, how your job's going, how much you're making, it's all going to be gone. And yet you are in a race for the salvation of your souls. We are in a race. And the writer wants to encourage you. He wants to encourage you to be forward-looking, straining to overcome what's already behind. And here's the secret. There is a secret to this. And now he says, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher, I prefer that, author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's interesting that the writer early on in this book has already called Jesus the forerunner. I don't know if you remember that. I think it's in chapter 2. He's the forerunner. Uh, he says, talking about the heavenly temple and through the veil, he says, where Jesus, the forerunner, has gone for us. I actually think that's a little hint about what he's saying here. Jesus is the forerunner. He has gone before. He has won the race. He has obtained the victory. He has conquered Satan, sin, and death. He has come conquering and to conquer. He has triumphed by the shedding of his blood. He has secured the victory for you. Unlike Michael Johnson, the victory is not dependent on you. It's dependent on Jesus Christ. And the writer says... He's not only the forerunner, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Look, here's where the comfort comes in. You will have failings. You will have falterings. You will have times when you just want to stop running. I think I told you one of my worst childhood memories. I don't, my mom and dad are here. I don't know if they remember this. I was running a race in high school, and I just I couldn't finish it. And I, I just stopped, and I didn't finish the race. And, then, and the coach put me back on and said, just walk it. There are times in life when you may feel like that. And yet, at those times is when we depend even more on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author 
and the finisher, the beginner and the ender, the one who gave us faith, the one who is the object of our faith, the one who sustains our faith. Isn't there a beautiful picture of this in Simon Peter? He's in the boat. Jesus comes. They see him walking on the water. They don't know it's Jesus. They think it's a ghost. Jesus says, it's me. They say, if it is you, Peter says, let me come to you. He starts to walk on the water. He looks around at the wind. He looks at the turbulence. He looks at his circumstances. He looks at himself and he begins to sink. And the author and the finisher of Peter's faith reaches out his hand and saves Peter and pulls him up. And it's the same Jesus who did the same thing for Peter when Peter denied him. And Jesus said to him before he denied him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's Jesus saying, I am the author and the finisher of your faith. There's a beautiful picture in the book of Revelation. I'll turn there with you. Revelation chapter 4. And what this vision in Revelation chapter 4, 5, and then 7, really, and really through the whole book, it's a vision of the fruit of Jesus' having run the race. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand of God. What did he get for enduring the cross, despising the shame, and sitting down at the right hand of God? He got the joy of being with all those for whom he died. What, What Jesus The reward for Jesus is that the Father gets glory and that he gets to be with you and with me. Hard as that is to imagine how that's a reward for Jesus, to be with me for eternity. Me. (laughs) Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And this is the beautiful picture we get. Notice notice in in chapter 5, chapter 5. Beginning in verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, that's the church of the Old and New Testament, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy. You have run the race. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you have ransomed people to God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped. If you are not taken back by that, 
you may not be in that picture. Let me say that. If you are not moved by that, if you are not in awe of that picture of the slain Lord Jesus Christ receiving praise and honor and glory, a multitude too great to number out of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation standing around the throne and around the Lamb and praising Him, it may be that you're not in that number. And so we are called to examine our hearts and say, as I am running this race, am I A, trying to do it for myself self-righteously, because it is very possible to pursue holiness legally. Am I doing it to be seen by others? Am I doing it because I know it's the right thing to do, but my heart's just not in it? Or are you doing it because your Savior has done it before you and he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and one day we are going to see the fruit of his victory, not yours. You know, one of the unique things, I'll close this, one of the unique things when you watch the Olympics is, is the rejoicing after the victory and the rejoicing is always about the victory of the person who won. And the unique thing of the race that you're called to run in is that once you've run the race, once you've endured to the end and persevered before the throne of God in glory, all of the focus is going to be on the lamb. It's all going to be on the lamb. And nobody's going to say, good job, well done. He'll say well done to his people, but we will say you are worthy for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. You are worthy. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we need the grace of perseverance and the grace of your Holy Spirit to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily weighs us down and besets us and yet our God we need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and we need to see him in his victory and we need our eyes to be fixed on him and Father how desperately we need that and how desperately we need our hearts to be motivated by a desire to be with him and to see his glory Lord Jesus you promised that you would go to the cross and that you would go to your Father and that you would come again to make a place for us and to bring us to yourself that where you are there we may be also. And so we, help, we pray that you would help us to run by faith into your arms. We pray that you would make everyone here serious about the race of faith. We pray, O oh God, that you would encourage and build us up and that you would minister to us even as we come to the table that you would continue ministering to the spiritual needs of our souls this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.